supposed to be stuck, seized, disconnected, lifeless. I was made for more than this. Not to stay, but to be restored by the one who designed me. Refined and renewed as he does his work. And then to be driven by a force, alive and connected to those around me, and working for something greater, propelling each other forward in motion, living rust-free and keeping speed, to be part of something bigger as I live out my purpose. I was made for this. I was made to grow. The year was 1789. The men of the HMS Bounty were on a float near Tahiti in the South Pacific. They had had it with their captain, Captain Bly. Fletcher Christian, a lieutenant on board the ship, led a group of men to overthrow the captain and took the captain and his supporters. They threw him in a boat and sent him off into the South Pacific, thinking that he would probably die in the South Pacific. Unfortunately for them, he made it to England. We know the story as the mutiny on the bounty. And when he got to England, the British government sent a ship back to the South Pacific to Tahiti to arrest the mutineers. Well, nine of the mutineers escaped to a small island nearby. And when they got to that island, what they did next is a case study for what happens when you don't have rules to live by and you don't have a moral compass. It started out that they started making, uh, they figured out how to make whiskey from plants. And then they started wreaking havoc on the population, specifically the women of the island. They killed off most of the men and then they started killing off each other. Finally, after a short amount of time, only one man from the original mutineers remained. His name was Adam Smith. Now, Adam Smith uh, was most likely a murderer, and one day he was going through all of the belongings of a dead sailor when he came across a book, and that book was the Bible. He was not a Christian, but as he read this Bible, he was convicted of his sin. He, he saw God's grace. He said he wanted Jesus in his life. He threw himself on his knees, and he received Jesus as his Savior and Lord. And then he decided to live out not only his life by God's word, but the wife of the woman he had taken on the island as his, his wife uh, for all of his kids that they would have. And then they started sharing Jesus with others on the island. Twenty years later, a ship shows up on this deserted island, and what they found was uncanny. Everyone on the island got along. There was absolutely no crime People looked out for one another. There were no man-made diseases, all because one man made a decision. And that decision, first of all, was to follow Jesus, and then secondly, to put himself under the authority of the Bible. Which begs a question. Have you ever considered how the Bible, the authority of Scripture in life, can have an influence not only on your life, but the life of others? But here's the problem. The problem is, is that we got to know that it's true, or whether or not it's true. Is it a collection of just folklore and legend, some poetry, as some people call it, a, a collection of stories? Or is it God's word from the voice and the mouth of God himself? Such is what we're going to talk about today. In fact, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. When the Bible has authority over your life, it will influence your life. 
when the Bible has authority over your life that will influence your life because the Bible is very, very personal. The Bible is a story not of us, but of God first. The story of Jesus. It's his story, and then our story is wrapped up in that story. And what God tells us is there's no way for us to figure out who we are, what our destiny is, what we're called to do without him being intertwined in that, without us understanding his story. That's what we're going to be talking about today is the believability of the Bible and why we want you to connect with God through scripture. Uh, Before I get into today's teaching, a a caveat on my sources, I always pull from a bunch of different pastors and and theologians and obviously the, uh, I mean the Holy Spirit and and God's word. But today there are three theologians I leaned on pretty heavily for the teaching. Warren Wiersbe is one of them, N.T. Wright is one of them, and then as I always quote from this guy, Timothy Keller, is another. And I always want to make sure uh, that I, I give my sources whenever I preach. So Let's talk about the Bible. God's got a lot to say about that as we hit week five of our series called Growing. It's in this series in which we're looking at seven foundational aspects of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, but more importantly, what it means to go and make disciples because we're in the disciple reproduction business here at Cornwall Church. As I said, we're going to be talking about connecting with God through Scripture. That's our discipleship goal we're talking about this week. But I really want to hone in on this thing called the Bible, on the believability of the Bible. Because here's the issue at hand. we got to ask ourselves, where do we go as the final arbitrator when it comes to those major muscle movements in life? When it comes to making decisions, do we rely on the news? Do we rely on the culture, our gut feelings? Who or what is the final arbitrator? You see, when we receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we say what I talked about in week two of the series on prayer, those four dangerous words. The four most dangerous words you can say is, your will be done. So when we say that, we're saying, God, I accept your will over my will, your will in my life. But how do we know what God's will is? Well, the answer is the Bible. But here's the problem. So many of us pick up God's word and we say, you know, I really like what the Bible says about forgiveness, that there's nothing that I can do that God won't forgive me of. The worst thing imaginable, God would still forgive me. He says it right here. But I got a problem with forgiving others who have really, really hurt me because they're not even sorry for it. And and I really want them to rot in hell. I may love God greatly, and I love what the Bible says about loving God greatly, but I don't know if I really love what the Bible says about my sexuality or my purity. You know, I love what the Bible says about social justice. It is stacked with with things of social justice, but I don't know if I really agree or like what the Bible says about the sanctity of marriage or the sanctity of life. What has the final say in your life with those muscle movement decisions, with the difficult decisions in life? We're going to be hanging out in three chunks of scripture today. We're going to start out in Matthew chapter 28. We're going to fast forward over to Luke chapter 1 and wrap it up with Luke chapter 24. We'll have another verse in there too. But turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. It's the first book of the New Testament. Let me set the scene for what's happened. Go back 2,000 plus years ago, the most important event in history, we're going to talk about it today, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, fast forward 50 days, 50 days, Jesus is getting ready to pour out his Holy Spirit on the disciples, 
And before he does, he gives them a command, and with that, he gives us a command. Let's look at this. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Matthew writes, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. He's talking to everybody here. He's talking no matter what their race is, their economic background, their sexual preference, whatever the case may be, you got to go out and make disciples. It's a command because time is short. So he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then look at this and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. How do we know what Jesus commands us to do? How do we know what Jesus' words are? How do we know what the authority of Jesus is? Well, the answer is the Bible. God uses the Bible to express his authority and his truth. He uses the Bible to express both his authority and his truth. So what I want to do before we jump into today's teaching, I want to give us an overview of the Bible, a very brief overview of the Bible. I call it Bible in a Minute. Now, Pastor Bob is really good at this. What he does is in one breath, because he has big lungs, he, he, he's able to say all 66 books of the Bible in one minute. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to give you the story of the Bible in one minute. You guys ready? Strapped in? You Sure. Because here we, I tried it two, three years ago when I taught here on, on this subject, and it flopped hard. <laughs> Pray for me. Here we go. One, two, three. Earth made Adam Eve. Cain killed Abel, had to leave. Boring genealogies, great flood, olive leaf. Tower of Babel, Abraham, Sodom, man, Gomorrah, and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Ten Commandments, Promised Land. Judges, David, Solomon, sent away to Babylon. Job, and a bunch of Psalms, Proverbs, and the Song of Songs. Major prophets, Lion's Den, Minor prophets, Bethlehem. Gold and myrrh and frankincense, Satan and Samaritans. Choose disciples, other cheek. Walk on water, thousands eat. Lazarus, fig tree, last supper, Gethsemane. Blood, money, third denial, Pontius Pilate, public trial. Forty lashes to the tree. Why have you forsaken me? Third day, empty tomb, reappears, five wounds. Acts of the epistles next. Epistles and apocalypse. Less than a minute. There you go. <laughs> Boom. Everybody go home, read your Bible to get stronger, can't wait any longer. That's right. Oh, I miss youth ministry. Oh, sometimes. Okay, so what I want us to do with that and we're awake, what I want us to do is I want us to look at the Bible as a story. The Bible as a story, as I said earlier, one of the guys I leaned on heavily for today's teaching is N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright, an incredible theologian. He doesn't have much hair because he's so smart. He's shot all the, like, the hair follicles out of his head. Uh, some of you have that same issue. You're very, very smart. That's awesome. And what he says is that the world has convinced us that everything happens in a random way that the world was made from randomness, randomness, everything happens out of randomness. Our job is then to figure out our happiness in the randomness. And God says, no, that's not true. That's not true at all. So what, what he, he talks about is looking at the Bible as a story, actually a five-act play. So let's take a look at this. Five acts in the Bible as a story. Act one is creation. So John, the apostle that talks about him, himself a lot in scripture, the disciple Jesus loved, he says these words. 
In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Everything that has been made has been made for Him and through Him and by Him. Nothing that has been made has been made without Him. So at the beginning, you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God creates, and everything He creates is good. And then He creates people, Adam and Eve. And when he creates Adam and Eve, he says, no, these, it's not good. this is very good. And what he does is he gives them and he gives us free will. Because he wants us to be able to choose God over ourselves. He wants us to choose to love God, not to be forced to love God, because forced love is not real love. So he tells Adam and Eve, you've got one, you, you can do whatever you want in the, in, the, uh, in the Garden of Eden here, but there's just one thing. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do it. Do you understand? And they say, yes, we understand. And sure enough, Satan shows up to tempt them. And they say, come on. He says, come on. You know you want to eat from that because as soon as you do, your eyes are going to be opened and you're just going to be like God. And so out of their selfishness, they take a bite of the fruit. Enter Act 2, the fall. Because when Act 2 occurs, all hell breaks loose on earth. Every evil thing that happens on our planet right now can be traced back to act two, that fall, that one act of disobedience because the spiritual forces of darkness gained force that day and that's why we are born with this thing called a sin nature. Every ugly thing spun from that. And before we bang on Adam and Eve, because it's real easy to do, I don't think we could have done any, any better. I don't think on this side of eternity that we will ever be able to understand just how difficult that temptation was. So they cave. They biff it. And what's beautiful is that God wasn't sitting there and he didn't lean over and elbow Jesus going, Jesus, can you believe what these guys did? I thought they were going to make it. He knew from the start that Jesus was going to have to step down from the throne and get in the dirt to save us. However, God decides to choose Israel to start this resistance movement. This is God, uh, Act 3. God chooses Israel. God chooses Israel. He goes through a man named Abraham, Abram, who would become Abraham. And he says, I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to bless your sandals off. You're going to have a whole bunch of offspring, and you're going to be a nation. And people are going to look at you as a bastion of goodness. People are going to look at you and, and, and your nation, my people, and they're going to see me. They're going to want to come closer to me. So you got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. And there's a rabble of about a million and a half, two million people out in the desert. And compare them with the barbaric cultures around them, the barbaric nations around them. God says, I'm going to give you some rules to live by. I've got a higher standard for you than the others out there. So God gives them three sets of laws. He gives them the civil law so they know how to get along. He gives them the ceremonial laws so they know how to worship a holy God being an unholy people. And then he gives them the moral law. The moral law, which is a moral compass for them and for us. Well, all of those laws end up pointing to act for Jesus, the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus comes to this earth not for behavior modification, but for heart transformation. Jesus steps down in the dirt, and he's going to lead this resistance movement against evil. He's going to die for our sin, because from that point in the Garden of Eden, we're all born with this sin nature. Just try to keep a cookie from a two-year-old, and no matter how great that environment is for that two-year-old, they're going to go for the cookie even though you tell them not to. That's sin nature. We all have it. 
So Jesus goes to the cross. He takes on our sin, past, present, and future. He dies, he's buried, and he's resurrected. And 50 days after that, he pours out his Holy Spirit onto his disciples. Enter Act 5, the church. Now, the disciples, as I talked about a couple weeks ago, the, the disciples weren't interested in starting a church. They weren't interested in starting a new movement. Every day they were going down to the temple because they were trying to show their fellow brothers and sisters, Jewish brothers and sisters, that Jesus completes their faith. But, of course, the Jewish leadership would have none of that, and the Pharisees kicked them out, and they were persecuted. And as they were persecuted, the church was established. And the church is where we are now. We are supposed to be a bastion of goodness in a very dark and difficult world. We're supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus and, and, and be more than just a building. So that's what God calls us to, that we're supposed to restore hope to the hurting. We're going to talk more about that next week. So that's where we are now, Act 5, the church. We go and make disciples. We not only are disciples, but we make disciples. We're in the disciple reproduction business because time is short. So with that, back to our main point. When the Bible has authority over your life, it will influence your life. And why is that? Because the Bible is very, very personal for each one of that. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at Luke chapter 1, and then we're going to look at Luke chapter 24. Book ends in the book of Luke. So turn to Luke chapter 1. Let me set the scene for what's happening. Luke is a non-Jewish writer. He's the only non-Jewish writer in the New Testament. He writes two books, uh, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. We're going to be spending the whole summer in the book of Acts. It's going to be pretty cool. So Luke is a very specific writer, and what he does is he writes this account. He goes out and gets a bunch of eyewitness accounts, and he writes an orderly account for this guy named Theophilus. Okay, so let's look at this. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke writes these words. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were, look at this, eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Okay, press pause. So he's gone out and he's talked to people who have walked the dirt with Jesus, who were there not only for the resurrection and to see Jesus in his resurrected state, but who were with Jesus beforehand. Let's keep on going. He says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know, circle that, no, underline it, no, put stars around it, we're going to come back to it so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So he says, guys, listen, I've carefully investigated this. Theophilus, I want you to understand why you believe what you believe. I want you to trust what you believe. I've got an orderly account that I've put together. And he uses this word no. You guys know I like to geek out and Greek out. The word no here is important. It's actually epigenosco. Epigenosco. It sounds like you're ordering something in Italian. You know, give me an order of ravioli and a side of epigenosco. Hold the anchovies. But it's not that. It, it means to know, but it means more to just know something. You know, you can, you can get a red apple. And somebody will tell you, uh, if you're colorblind, they'll say, yeah, that's a red apple. If you're not colorblind, you'll see that it's a red apple. You know that it's red. But what epigenosco is, it means that you understand why that apple is red. So he says to our man Theophilus, he says, I want you to understand from the depth of your being the certainty of the things you've been taught. So I wanted to give us four reasons to believe in the Bible. One of them is not... One of them is not because God says you need to. Four reasons that we can believe in the Bible. 
Okay, so it, it, because if you don't believe in the Bible, if you don't understand in, in, in its authenticity, you're not going to put a th- yourself under its authority. So let's look at this. Now, four reasons to believe in the Bible. The first one is that all four gospel accounts were written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. All four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. And I would, I, I would argue all of the New Testament letters, they were all written within 60 years of Jesus' resurrection. So there were so many eyewitnesses that saw Jesus not only walk the dirt, but in his resurrected state, and no one refuted those eyewitness accounts. They were still alive. Those eyewitnesses were still alive. If you look at, at, at the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were all written within 20 years to 25 years after Jesus' resurrection, and that's important. Because in Luke's time, historians focused on one thing particularly, and that's eyewitness accounts. But here's the issue. Here's what doomsday naysayers say, the people who, who, who push against the Bible say. They say that after about 300 years or so, you've got this legend of Jesus and these other legends. And the story grows over time. It's like you go fish in Lake Padden or Lake Stevens, and you catch a fish, and it's like this big. But the more you tell the story, it gets bigger and bigger over time, and eventually you caught a whale at Lake Padden. And what the the naysayers are saying is the same thing happens with the Bible. You have these oral legends, and over time, the legend grows. And then you got a church about 300 years later that that decides to pick and choose what they want to be in the Bible, and and with that, they've got a political bent because the church is all political, and with that, you get the Bible. And the issue with that is, is that it's false. The surviving eyewitness accounts are very, very important. That's very important for anything to be judged historically. But let's talk about this thing called legends. You know, in in the first probably 400 years after Jesus' resurrection, those first 400 years, the type of, of stuff that sold books was not the stuff of Jesus. You would never have a legend be like Jesus. If you wanted to sell a book, Back in that time, the way you would do it is you would have Jesus coming into Jerusalem with a purple robe, with a big sword on a big white horse, and he kills a bunch of people, and he overthrows Rome. But that's not what happens. You see, you wouldn't have a legend ride in to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, weeping for his people, saying, you've killed all the prophets, here I am, I'm going to the cross to die. You'd never sell books if you had a legend like Jesus thrown up on a cross in his underwear, who has been completely beaten, and then he dies screaming those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You don't sell books with that. Legends aren't made of of a man that goes on his knees before he would go to the cross and, and and just say, Father, please take this cup of suffering from me. You would never have a legend in the time of Jesus. If you're gonna sell books, come out of his resurrected state, and the first person he talks to, the first people he talks to, are women. Because in that time, women couldn't even appear in a court of law as witnesses, yet Jesus did. It's not about legends and folklore. It's about the eyewitness accounts. And they weren't disputed by the people who were alive and saw what happened. So let's keep on going. Number two. Let's talk about the historical and geographical accuracy of the Bible. There are archaeological digs that have been going on for hundreds upon hundreds of years, and they consistently dig up stuff that that proves uh, cities, civilizations, uh, people, and events of 
the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, so I'm a geek, I'm a nerd, uh, uh, big time. I love to read, I love looking at history, and so I'm a member of the, wait for it, yes, here it comes, the Biblical Archaeological Society. And before you go, oh, hoy polloi, you know, Indiana Jones, he's got the hat, he's got the whip. It's not because I, I, I wanted to get something like that. I thought they had a really cool coffee cup when I signed up, and they don't. And so, but there was another reason. The second reason is they have what's called the Biblical Archaeological Review. It's a magazine that comes out every three months, and it consistently shows stuff that are unearthed that support the biblical accounts. So you've got historical and geographical accuracy out of God's Word. How about number three? Number three is real important for me. It's the power to change lives. The power to change lives. From Adam Smith, who was a murderer, who ended up changing an entire island, to Ishmael here, me. Um, I've talked so many times about my struggles with, with anxiety and with depression, with uh, PTSD, and how God has talked me off that proverbial ledge. There are so many times when I've been in the dark night of the soul, and it's been His Word, His Word that's comforted me and that's helped me, and so many of you have done that too. You've seen God show up in your lives in that way, change lives when you're going through the valley of the shadow of death. And the Psalms comfort you. When you're trying to make good decisions and you pull out Proverbs and it's just soaked with wisdom about every aspect of our lives, the Sermon on the Mount continues to push against our pride and push against our legalism. But there are other reasons. Before we hit reason number four, let me give a couple more reasons. The prophetic accuracy of the Bible, hundreds upon hundreds of prophecies fulfilled in God's word to the T. You don't find that in the Quran. You don't find it in the Book of Mormon. And you don't find that in the writings of Buddha. But go with me on this one. This one's kind of cool. Just the unity of the Bible. 40 authors in 1,600 years, all with the unity of that story that I, we talked about, those five acts, all with Jesus as the hero. Okay, so we're going to geek out real quick, and it's not on Greek. This is, this is kind of cool. So if you're looking at your Facebook right now, and, and you want to geek out with me, then shut off your Facebook, shut off Instagram. If, if, if you don't want to geek out, just keep on going and doing what you're doing, okay? The Bible's written in two languages, uh, ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek. Ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek. And in Hebrew and Greek, uh, ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek, they don't separate letters from numbers. So like for us in English, we go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, right? Okay, so they don't do that in ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek. This is cool. Each alphabet letter has a numerical value. So for example, when you see the number 33, it means more than just 33. So let's just use 33 as an example. Uh, the number 33 is known in ancient Hebrew as the number of promise. The number of promise, okay? Ancient, number 33 is the number of promise. The number of promise is 33. Number 33 is the number of what? Promise. All right, you guys are sticking with me. Here we go. The number 33, there's no coincidence. We're thinking unity of the Bible here, number of promise. It's no coincidence that the 33rd time that Noah's name shows up is when God is promising him that, and us that he will not destroy the earth with a flood. It's a number of promise. No coincidence that the 33rd time that Abraham's name shows up is when God is fulfilling the promise that he is going to give him a son, Isaac, and he's going to bless the sandals off of Abraham and give him more kids. It's a number of promise. 
the 33rd time that Jacob's name shows up in Scripture, number of promise, no coincidence that Jacob's, Jacob's racked out on the floor or on the ground and he's having this dream of this ladder and there's the, these people coming and going on this ladder. The, the ladder represents what Jesus is going to do for us. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes, comes to the Father but by Jesus. And with Jesus now, we have access to a holy God. It's a number of promise, 33. How old is Jesus when he dies? 33. And he promises he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Here's an extra one that's kind of cool. This past week, Tim Tebow signed with the Jacksonville Jaguars. And, and Tim Tebow, some of you may know, he, he, you know, he's a Heisman Trophy winner, but his time in the NFL did not go well. Guess how old Tim Tebow is? 33. Yeah, proving that God loves football more than any other sport. The football field is ripe for the harvest. Can I get an Amen. It's the unity of the Bible. It's not just the number 33. There's a whole study on numbers that can get really goofy. But, but it's throughout not only Hebrew, but ancient Greek. It's pretty cool. But here's the fourth reason, and probably the most important reason to believe in Scripture, is that it's the, the truth about Jesus. It's the truth about Jesus, that all Scripture points to Jesus. So let's fast forward to Luke 24. We're doing the bookends of Luke. Luke is, is giving this very detailed account, and if you want to go into the most details of all the Gospels about Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection, you want to go to the book of Luke. So Luke 24, Jesus is now in his resurrected state, and this is what's kind of crazy, is when Jesus was in his resurrected state, sometimes he'd show people who he was, sometimes he'd be incognito. So he's walking down a road incognito, and he's about eight miles northwest of Jerusalem. They're going to this town called Emmaus. He's going to this town called Emmaus, and he runs into two of his disciples. His disciples are boo-hoo and big time. I mean, they're, they're, they're just upset, and Jesus comes a, a, upon them, and he says, hey, what's up, guys? And they're like, well, have you, haven't you heard what happened? He's like, no, what's the news? And they're like, what, you've had your head in the sand? He says, no, share with me. And they said, yeah, this guy named Jesus, he was our Messiah, we thought. He was supposed to overthrow Rome, but now he's dead, and we don't know what to do. So Jesus says, buck up, little campers. Let me tell you a story. Luke 24, let's look at verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets that was spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, look at this, look at this. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, all the scriptures. It, so Jesus lays it out to him. And I, if I were Jesus, I would have not spent all that time doing that. I would have said, hey, guys, remember, you know, third day, empty tomb, reappears, five wounds. And I'd show him, like, my nail-pierced hands and my feet and the, 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 the side poke. I, that's what I do. Jesus doesn't. He goes back not only into the Old Testament, but all of the Old Testament. And what he does is he explains through all the prophets that they all point to him. It's as, if, it's as if he was saying, guys, you're not understanding this. Let me make this clear. Remember that story of Joseph? You know, Joseph is betrayed by his own family, and he's sold into slavery, yet he saves his people. That story points to me. The story of Moses. Uh, Moses stands in the gap between God and the people, and he saves his people. That story points to me. David, Goliath. The Israeli army shaken in its sandals. Don't you understand that David represents me, Goliath represents sin, and you can't 
kill your own sin because all y'all are over here shaking in your shoes. You can't take him on. Don't you understand that points to me? The story of Jonah, before he's thrown into the belly of a fish and then barfed out smelling like whale stuff, he's on a ship. The ship is ready to crash. And he says to the men on the boat, you got to throw me overboard because I have to be sacrificed so that you can live. Don't you understand? That story points to me. Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before my birth, details it all. It all points to me. Don't you understand? It all points to me. He's going through all of the prophets. It's a long walk, yet they still don't get it. Let's keep going. Verses 28 to 32. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them, and when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then look at this, look at this. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. He's no longer incognito. And he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining what to them? The scriptures. Guys, look at this. When they invite Jesus into their home, and when they sit and have fellowship with him, their eyes are open. This is why we want you to connect with God through scripture. Because when you sit with this book, this amazing book, God gives us the Holy Spirit for a whole bunch of reasons, and he's going to bring stuff that pops up in our lives, and we fellowship with Jesus. This is all about Jesus. Everything in here is about Jesus. Everything leads to Jesus. It's all about him. The scriptures made sense to the disciples now because of Jesus, and it all starts with the resurrection. Christianity is an events-based religion. One event, one event. And that event is the resurrection. The Apostle Paul said, if the, if, if the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith means nothing. You, you see, the, the birth of Jesus in the manger, that's important. But if the resurrection didn't happen, then he just went to the cross and he died and he was a martyr for a good cause. But the resurrection happened. And, and God gives us this event and then he gives us the text as evidence for the event. How we understand the Bible, when we understand its authenticity, then we can give it authority over it and we can live by its words and live by God's words and his guidance in our lives. Okay, so what I want us to do now is I want us to fast forward to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes three letters to two pastors. Paul's getting ready to die. And at that time, the early church had almost all of the New Testament and the Old Testament as we have it. So let's look at this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul says to Timothy, this young pastor, he says, All scripture, all scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God, that's, that's us, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scriptures God breathed. So at Timothy's time, they had the Old Testament as we had it today. A little, a few changes in it, but basically they had the Old Testament that we have. And they were teaching out of it. The disciples were teaching out of the Old Testament. 
but they also had all but maybe three letters of the New Testament. So of, of all the Bible that we have today, they had it minus three letters. It just wasn't in a pretty binder, and they didn't have those last three letters. All of that scripture they had, and it was looked upon, those letters that were circulating within the church, the New Testament letters that we would end up getting in our Bible, they would be teaching out of those with authority. So God takes 40 men in 1,600 years, and he inspires them. He basically says, here's what I need you to write. It wasn't these men just willy-nilly writing stuff and passing notes saying, hey, make sure you put that number 33 in there. Don't forget about Tim Tebow. And so what Scripture says now is what God says. Jesus would agree with that. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, uh, Jesus starts his earthly ministry. He's 30-ish years old. He, he's dunked into the Jordan, comes out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. He's sent, God sends him into the desert to be tested, and Satan shows up to tempt him. How does Jesus defeat Satan? He, he quotes Old Testament scripture. He says, it is written. Of the 1,800 verses of Jesus speaking, 200 of, of, of those verses are Jesus quoting Old Testament scripture, which is a great reason for us to believe in the Bible, simply because Jesus did. Jesus believed in the totality and authority of scripture, and so should we. That means that we believe the passages that push up against us. Those passages I talked about at the beginning that, 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 may, uh, that may go against what our culture says is the norm or what we may feel should be the norm in our life. Because if we don't allow God to push back against us, then he's a little G God. I mean, I need a God that's going to contradict the junk of this world. I need a God that's going to push against me and say, Kip, it's not about you, that I've got something bigger and better. I need a big G God that's going to walk me through the valley of the shadow of death, who's going to say, hey, see those snowballs over there? Put them in your hands. Let's go down and storm the gates of hell. Let's have a snowball fight, Satan. That's a God I want to I follow, not a little G God. If God can't contradict you, he's a small God of your own making. That's the beauty of this. That's the beauty of this. As you're reading it, he pushes up against you on some things, but then he lifts you up and carries you on to bigger things. All right, let me land this plane. A lot of turbulence on this flight. Let's land this plane. Timothy Keller once said these words. He says, we serve a God who identifies with the people at the bottom of the ladder. The people at the bottom of the ladder. If you look at the Old Testament and if you look at the New Testament, we, we consistently see cultures and civilizations that worship little g gods. And, and, and our God is different. Cultures and civilizations in male-dominated societies that would never stand with women, God says, no, I stand with the widow. And that widow represents marginalized women. You would never see in these little g god cultures these ancient cultures. You would never see them standing with kids, but, but God says, no, I stand with the orphan. Jesus said, bring the children to me. And oh, by the way, if you cause these kids to sin, it sucks to be you. You better have a millstone thrown around your neck and you're gonna be thrown in the deepest water. There's gonna be bad judgment for you. God stands with the orphan. In these ancient cultures that would never, ever stand with an immigrant, God says, I stand with the immigrant. I stand with the foreigner. I stand with the alien. In these little G-God cultures that worship the God of the rich, 
And if you do anything to bless the poor, it's only for a blessing that you can get. And God says, no, I stand with the poor. I stand with the marginalized. Guys, only, only our God, only Jesus shows us through this forgiveness and reconciliation. In the time of the new church, humility was a cuss word. No one would want to show humility because that showed weakness, but that's what we see in here, that we're supposed to be humble. You would never stand with the poor. You would never care for the poor. You would never see that, that other races are different than you, and, and, and the other cultures would say are less than you, but God says, no, racism is a sin, and I'm not going to stand for it. Universal human rights all found here. Dr. Jim Dennison said these words. He said, in order to live effectively, we need to think biblically. But the problem is, guys, is we got to know it to live it. So let me, let me be clear about something as, as we wrap up today. You can be a Christ follower and not follow the Bible. You, you can be a Christ follower and never open the Bible. The early church didn't have it all put in one nice little thing right here. But you cannot grow as a Christ follower. You can't get that depth without digging into God's word. You simply can't. Once or only when the Bible has authority in your life will it influence your life. So I want to give you a challenge. Many of you have a, a reading plan that you do. You're in the Bible every day. Good on you. Keep doing that. Keep growing in God's word. Start sharing it with others. But many of you don't do that, and, and it's, I'm not guilting and shaming you. What I want to do is, is I want to just show you that, that this is so amazing. God has a gift for you in your life through this, and he wants you to open it up. He wants you to spend time with Jesus because it's all about Jesus, his love for you, a dark world where he wants us to be the light and you to be the light. So here's your challenge. I want you to choose one of these two devotionals for the next seven days. You can go to the YouVersion Bible app. You can go online. Online, we've got the link for that. Just go to the YouVersion Bible app and, and choose one of them for the next seven days. One is written by Priscilla Shire. She's an amazing Bible teacher. Her dad's one of my heroes, Dr. Tony Evans. And she does a great job tying scripture and, and into real life. It's pretty cool. And then the other one is by a guy named Louis Giglio, and it's called A God Who is Faithful. Choose one or the other for the next seven days. And actually, if you want to take it to the next level, choose to do it with someone else. Invite them in for seven days and see what happens. At the end of that seven days, who knows, you might say, you know, let's, let's dig into the book of Mark. It's pretty short. And let's just see what happens. No matter what, allow God to influence your life through his word.